The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so the, uh, yesterday we started uh, having a look at the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, and I want to continue uh, today with just continuing on the about same principles. And one of the things that I was looking at yesterday was this idea of the uh, conditionality of the Noble Eightfold Path, how each factor uh, uh, conditions the one that comes after it. Uh, and because of that, because of this conditionality, it means that the, the root factor, the first one, which is right view uh, uh, at the beginning of the path, in many ways is the most important one, because if that one is established, the other ones tend to follow along as a consequence of that right view. Uh. So right view is important, but it's not quite as simple as, not, as that. Uh, it's not just a one-way conditionality, and somebody actually brought that up yesterday in one of the interviews. Uh, uh, the idea is that it also kind of loops back. There's also a feedback. So the, uh, the higher factors of the path, like you know, samadhi and mindfulness and all these things, uh, they also have an effect on the previous ones. Uh, so although there is a main line of conditionality starting with, with right view, there's also feedback going back from the later factors to the previous ones. Uh, and this is what you will see in this next sutta, just a very brief explanation of that. Uh, um, and it goes as follows, at Savati. Uh, by the way, it's very interesting, these places like Savati, this is a, a place in the north of India, and you can go there to the present day and you can actually see this place called Savati. Uh, uh, many people have been to India uh, before? Yeah, a few? Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So you can go there, right? And you can see this is where the Buddha sat. And you <laughs> it's quite amazing that these places actually are still, uh, still in existence to the present day. Uh, anyway, at Savati, because develop uh, stillness. A bhikkhu, a monk who is stilled, understands things as they really are. And what does he understand as it really is? Or you could say according to reality, perhaps, as it really is. Sounds a bit too kind of firm and uh, unchanging, but according to reality, perhaps. Uh, he understands according to reality. This is suffering. He understands according to reality. This is the origin of suffering. He understands according to reality. This is the cessation of suffering. Can you find it there? Yeah? Yeah. He understands according to reality. This is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. Monks develop stillness. A bhikkhu, a monk who is stilled, understands things according to reality. Therefore, because an exertion should be made thus, this is suffering, an exertion should be made to understand, this is the origin of suffering, an exertion should be made to understand, this is the cessation of suffering, an exertion should be made to understand, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So this is an interesting little sutta, interesting for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that uh, as I just, was just saying before, uh, here you see how samadhi, how stillness, leads to the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, and of course the Four Noble Truths is about right view, right? Uh, understanding, of, and so we'll see that in a second. This is the definition of right view, the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, 
So you can see how the last factor of the path goes back to the first one again, right? It's like you have, almost like you have a circle, uh, things going around, uh, the last one going back to the first one. Uh, and um, so what this means, as I was saying before, that each factor, uh, uh, not only does, is there a forward movement, but there's also a, a kind of feedback mechanism, whereby when you have more mindfulness, for example, your virtue becomes better, right? Because you're more aware. You're more aware of your defilements, more aware of the hindrances in the mind. So that ability to be mindful increases your ability to be virtuous. And of course, samadhi, even more so, when you have samadhi, it leads to seeing things as they really are, as it says here. It strengthens the first factor, right view. So there is this important feedback mechanism going here from the latter factors of the path, uh, to the earlier ones. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the, one of the things that we will see shortly about right view uh, is that right view really is of two quite specific and different types. Uh, and one is what you might call the ordinary right view. The right view that when the Buddha says this is how the world works, right? You think, yeah, this is what the Buddha says. Okay, I'm going to take it seriously as a consequence because the Buddha said so. Uh, this is like ordinary right view. It's the right view that we take on board as a consequence of confidence in the teachings of the Buddha. Right? Here is this master who obviously said a lot of things that were quite profound. So you take it on board as a matter of confidence. Sometimes people use the word faith, but I think confidence is, is preferable. So this is the ordinary right view. And this is what we start off with on the Noble Eightfold Path. But then there comes a point when you have a deep insight into these teachings, and you understand for the first time what they really are about. And this is what we're seeing here. You, you know, you get to samadhi, then you have a profound understanding, and then what happens is that right view gets established firmly as a matter of insight, as a matter of direct understanding of what is going on there. And then the whole noble eightfold path, the whole thing becomes like firm in a sense that it has never been before her. Because now you know, now you have the real seeing. And this is what happens. This is why, this is specifically why the Sutta mentions this. Because at this point, your right view is firm. It is undeviating. You know for yourself what right view is all about. So that is the, uh, the first thing which is interesting about the Sutta. And the second thing which is interesting here is, of course, that what is it that leads to right understanding here? What is it that leads to understanding the Four Noble Truths? And what this sutta says is that it is samadhi, right? It is stillness of the mind, concentration. That is what leads to understanding here. And this is something you see again and again in the suttas, that this idea of yatha bhuta nanadasana, which is often called, seeing things and knowing things according to reality, is always based on samadhi. This is like a like this thing you see, you know, it's just hundreds of times probably. I can't, I, I have no idea how many times, I haven't counted it. <laughs> it is a lot, you know, you find it again and again in the suttas. And something you find again and again is obviously a very important message. Otherwise the Buddha wouldn't have, you know, repeated it so many times. So remember that, it is samadhi, it is stillness that leads to seeing things as they actually are. Often we hear that you know it is uh, you know it is satipatthana, for example, that leads to seeing things as they actually are, and satipatthana 
as I was saying yesterday, the main purpose of Satipatthana or right mindfulness in the suttas is to take you to Samadhi. That is the main purpose. And we saw that yesterday in this other sutta. And then Samadhi comes, and Samadhi is the foundation for this. And uh, this is one of the important things you start to realize when you uh, understand how this, how this whole thing works according to how uh, the suttas explain these things. So, anyway, so that is um, a, a little bit of a uh, kind of a side point, perhaps, uh, because we're, we're just starting out on the Noble Eightfold Path, and this is kind of high up there for perhaps later on. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's, that's Sutta, and it just uh, these are the two main issues that I wanted to just mention, uh, <coughs> which comes out of this particular Sutta. Okay, so now we have kind of had a look at all the bit of the background information, a little bit on the kind of overview of what the Noble Eightfold Path is all about. And now I want to look more at the individual factors and to see how they, uh, what, how they are defined individually and how they interact with each other. This is kind of important. And um, uh, because, as I just said before, because right view is at the beginning, is at the root of the Noble Eightfold Path, and because it is the factor that eventually gives rise to all the other factors, I think it's important and very useful to have a, a good look at this idea of right view. What does it actually mean? Try to understand this in a bit of detail, because then the rest tends to happen as a matter of course. So, uh, this right view, uh, this uh, is based, what I'm looking at now, is based on uh, a sutta called Analysis. And this sutta is what I'm, I'm going to come back to this sutta throughout the discussion of the Noble Eightfold Path. And then I will just, after having, so this sutta has been like divided up into eight segments. Uh, and for, after each segment, I will discuss what, what is involved in that particular segment. Well, the first segment here uh, is, uh, of the Noble Eightfold Path is about right view. So this is how it is an analyzed, and I will discuss that analysis. At Savati, most of the suttas were spoken at Savati, because that is where the Buddha had his main monastery, at least towards the end of his life. At Savati... Uh, monks, I will teach you the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, I will analyze it for you. Uh, listen to that and attend closely. I will speak. Uh, yes, Venerable Sir, those monks replied. Uh, and the Blessed One said this. Uh, and what, because is the Noble Eightfold Path? Uh, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, uh, right livelihood, right effort right mindfulness and right stillness. And what bhikkhus is right view? So here we go. And right view is here defined as the knowledge of suffering, the knowledge of the origin of suffering, the knowledge of the cessation of suffering, and the knowledge of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is called right view. And uh, so he, there you are. That, that is right view, and that, of course, is the knowledge of the Four Noble Truths, right? This is what is called right view here. And as you saw just a second before, the knowledge of the Four Noble Truths arises as a consequence of samadhi. 
So if you haven't got samadhi yet, you have a problem, right? <laughs> it means you can't really see them fully. You can't really understand what is, what is going on there. So it means that you have, at the very best, you have a partial knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, at the best, that's what it means. Uh, so, to, um, uh, so again, what it means, you have a partial knowledge of the Four Noble Truths, and there is other aspects of right view, which really... Uh, come to the fore instead at this early stage of the path. Uh, but I would like to have a look at the Four Noble Truths now because they are specifically said to be right view. So I want to have a look at those first of all. And also it sets a good context for the Noble Eightfold Path uh, because the Noble Eightfold Path is obviously embedded as part of the Four Noble Truths. So I'm going to, I think on your pages, uh, I have a slightly different version from what you have. Uh, uh, because I, I'm going to move on to the uh, uh, setting in motion of the wheel of the Dhamma, which is a sutta which comes a little bit later. And this is about the Four Noble Truths. So it's about one or two pages later. Yeah. That's right, that's the one. Yeah. Okay, got it? Yeah. Okay. So, okay, so this is the famous Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta, setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma, which traditionally is the first discourse spoken by the Buddha, right? The Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta, quite literally, the setting in motion of the wheel of the Dhamma. This is how the Buddha starts off his teaching. And the idea is that once you get this teaching started, it can't be stopped, right? It rolls into the world. And people hear it and think, wow, this is really good stuff. And then some people understand the truth and then they become teachers and they turn. And then it keeps on going like this, uh, you know, from generation to generation. Uh, so, uh, can you find it better? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good, okay, great. Yeah, okay. So this is that famous discourse which the Buddha started off his whole, uh, uh, his whole kind of teaching with. And why, this is how, why Buddhism is still here today, because he started off with this discourse. So obviously it is very fundamental, right? very basic to understanding of the Dhamma. And it is specifically about the Four Noble Truths. So let's see what he has to say about this. Thus have I heard, uh, on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Baranasi. This is Benares, right, in uh, India on the Ganges River, uh, in the deer park at Isipatana. There the Blessed One addressed the monks uh, of the group of five thus, because uh, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What to? The pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures, uh, which is low, uh, uh, common, common or ordinary, uh, uh, vulgar is not really a good translation, uh, the way of worldlings, uh, ignoble uh, and unbeneficial. Uh, 
And the second way is the pursuit of self-mortification, of self-torturing here, which is painful, ignoble, and beneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata, the Buddha, has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct uh, insight, to awakening, to enlightenment, and to Nibbana, to extinguishment, is quite literally the meaning of Nibbana. So this is uh, the Buddha setting out his new path, and you have to understand a little bit about the context here to understand why the Buddha is teaching in this way. The Buddha, remember, he went forth from a, from a household life in a fair amount of luxury, so he put that behind him. He realized that this way of luxury doesn't lead to awakening. And then he practiced ascetic practices, not as, actually not ascetic practices, he practiced self-torturing for about five or six years after that. And then one day he came to the realization that this doesn't work. So his first teaching is to say that these two things that I've been doing, these two ways that I've been leading my life, they, it doesn't work. It doesn't lead to any understanding. It doesn't lead to anything profound. It doesn't lead to awakening. It doesn't lead to the end of suffering, right? To the end of problems. Uh, so this is how he starts off, because he is teaching uh, his first disciples are the five ascetics uh, who were with the Buddha before, uh, and they believe in self-torture. So he has to kind of set the record straight. Actually, this doesn't work. I found the path. It is different. And uh, this is interesting because uh, what is it about self-torturing and what is it about sensual pleasures? Uh, that makes it not to work. Here it is called the two extremes. But actually, they are almost, uh, they're almost as two sides of the same coin, in a sense. And because if you, as long as you are indulging in sensual pleasures, Sensual pleasures means going out into the world. It means finding your pleasures outside of yourself, right? It means looking outside. And we're trying to kind of fill up this craving all the time by external things, looking outside. And as long as you are looking outside, you are, you know, you're always searching for things, always desiring, always craving for stuff. And because of that, you cannot really become still inside. And this is why sensual pleasures goes in the diametrical opposite direction from stillness, from meditation, from samadhi. Samadhi is by coming inside of yourself, not searching outside. Sensual pleasures, by the very nature, is searching outside. Sometimes you will hear people, you know, we want to have both. We want to have both sensual pleasures and good meditation and profound meditation and stillness. But to some extent, at least in the higher stages of meditation, they are diametrically opposed. They go in different directions. Sensual pleasures goes outside. Meditation goes inside. And because they are diametrically opposed, you can only take the, noble, the path of meditation so far if you are too involved in sensual pleasures. This is so important, and this is why, you know, you hear in the world, you hear people say, oh, you know, why have all these monks and nuns, what's the point of all this, it's a waste of time, you know, we live in the modern time, maybe two and a half thousand years ago, it was good to have monks and nuns, we don't need that anymore, these are kind of the modern days, you know, when we can kind of chuck out those, uh, those uh, extraneous uh, things which are no longer, you know, important uh, in our modern society. Uh, but the whole thing about being a monastic is precisely that. It is to, to try to kind of, to try and hopefully also to achieve to some extent uh, to giving up 
the search for happiness in sensual pleasures and find it inside instead. This is the purpose of that. And kind of monasticism is, is, a, is an expression of that, right? It's an expression, if it works properly. Sometimes it doesn't, but if it works properly, it is an expression of that. It is a direct expression of giving up the search for happiness in sensual pleasures and instead looking for it inside. So actually, monasticism that works, and of course that is an important proviso, it has to work, but if it works, it is, it is precisely uh, an expression of this middle way, uh, which goes between these things. Uh. So you, you don't look for it outside, and, and this is also why there is a problem with self-torture, or torturing yourself, self-mortification. Uh. It's exactly the same problem, because if you are uh, torturing the body, uh, Again, there is a problem in the physical world, in the world outside. You're having pain in, basically, it's, it's essential pain, right? One essential pleasure, the other one essential pain. If you have pain in the physical body, there is a problem to be dealt with, and the mind tends to go outside. Same thing again, the mind either goes outside because there is a problem in pain, or it goes outside because there's pleasure to be had through the senses. And either of those two ways make it harder, often impossible, to center the mind inside and to, to, to gain a stillness inside instead. So this is why the Buddha teaches this middle way, right? You get away from the externals and you draw it inside. And this is such an important principle. And once you, can, once you understand that, you understand, uh, in, in a sense, very, in a quite profound way, why this Noble Eightfold Path and why the path of meditation actually works as it does. And that is why it leads to, it says here, it leads, you know, what this path leads to. Uh, so the Buddha, the Tathagata, he has awakened to this middle way because it gives rise to vision, it gives rise to knowledge. Knowledge, perhaps knowledge in the sense of seeing things as they actually are, vision, seeing reality, right? To me, it's a very attractive thing, this idea that you become wise, you see things as they actually are. It leads to peace, right? And again, it leads to peace precisely because you are no longer searching for things in the external world. And you're coming inside instead. You're giving up that craving, that constant desire for external things. So it leads to peace, right? Peace, it sounds like when the Buddha says it leads to peace, it doesn't sound all that profound. But of course, it is extremely profound. When the Buddha says peace, it means peace with big capital P, right? The big peace. Not, not just kind of a little bit of, of stillness or whatever, but the real absolute peace where there's no craving, no movement. Everything has become completely still. And it leads to direct knowledge, uh, awakening, right? Wow, now I understand. I've woken up from this, like this dream, in a sense. And now I can see, the, see reality as it actually is. And it leads to Nibbana. And I, I think it's useful to actually translate the word Nibbana, because the word Nibbana has a real meaning in the Indian languages. It means basically something is extinguished, right? Like the extinguishing of a flame. So one way to look at Nibbana is extinguishment. And what is it that is extinguished? What is extinguished is the defilements of the mind, you know, the things like anger, uh, desire for the sensual pleasures, uh, and delusion, the kind of the misconception, uh, misunderstanding of the world. These are the things that are extinguished, right? Uh, and they no longer occur. So extinguishment. Uh, 
And when you extinguish these uh, fires, it means you feel cool afterwards. Uh, you don't burn inside anymore. Uh, these other things are called fires that burn you inside. Uh. So that's, what, that's what, where this path goes, right? Uh, sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Uh, you understand the world as it actually is, but not only do you understand, you find the highest peace. Uh, not only do you find the highest peace, but you extinguish all the defilements, uh, and you find the highest happiness and cool uh, as a consequence of that. All suffering is eliminated. Uh, you awaken to the truth. You see the world as it actually is. Uh, these are very kind of attractive concepts if you understand them in the right way. Uh, Okay, so that is, uh, uh, that is the beginning. So that is, of course, and what is this path that he has awakened to? And you guessed it, it is the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, that it is, uh, which leads about, it is this Noble Eightfold Path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right stillness. This because is that middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, the Buddha, uh, which gives rise to vision, to knowledge, to peace, to direct knowledge, to awakening, and to extinguishment. So this is that path that leads to all these things, right? The good old Noble Eightfold Path, you've probably heard that word so many times, uh, and after a while, you know, oh yeah, there we go again. This is the problem with hearing things too often. You stop thinking about it, right? You stop reflecting, what does it actually mean? Uh, this is what it means. It leads to all of these amazing, wonderful things, uh, uh, the sort of things that everybody, I think, everybody really wants in life. Okay, so now we are going to have a look at the uh, Four Noble Truths, uh, and this is what's coming up next here. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail because it will take too long, uh, but I at least have a fairly quick look at these things because they are, this is what we uh, and this is actually the meaning of right view. Now, this because is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering, union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates, right, the five groups, the five heaps subject to clinging are suffering here. So here, uh, here the Buddha um, basically specifies what he means by suffering. And many of those things will seem, will obviously be quite familiar to you. You will understand uh, fairly well what is meant by this. Uh, um, but um, it is not quite as straightforward as it may look. Yeah. On the surface, it is reasonably straightforward, at least most of them, but actually there is a lot of depth to these things, which is not immediately apparent. So the first thing is birth is suffering, right? What does that mean, birth is suffering? here? Um, and the, uh, the meaning of this, remember that what we are trying to do here is to overcome suffering, right? This is the whole purpose of the Noble Eightfold Path, is to end suffering. So how can you end birth? You've already been born, you're already here, you already kind of, you know, this is already fit, done and finished with. So why is that included in the first noble truth? And, and this is where it gets more profound, right? 
Uh, and the reason why it is included in the first noble truth is because it re must refer to rebirth. It refers to future birth. Because it's only future birth that you can possibly overcome. It's only future birth that you can end and which will then be a suffering here. So this is, uh, this is the first thing here, which is not as perhaps obvious as you might see. This is a reference to rebirth, future, future lives, future birth. So straight away, from the very beginning, this idea of rebirth, of, of life after life, if you, if you like, is included in the first noble truths. So rebirth is suffering, and of course that is, can be taken in many ways. The very fact of being born is probably suffering in its own right. Uh, but of course the whole idea here is that this going around, the samsara, the, this wheel of birth and death, that is, uh, is part of the problem here. Yeah. And it is then it becomes also more clear what is meant by, it says here, aging is suffering. Actually, it's not a good translation, it should be old age, it should, it should be old age is suffering, yeah. illness is suffering, yeah. and death is suffering. Yeah. Again, it may seem very obvious, right? We all understand that old age and illness and death can be suffering. Yeah. And I have seen this, you know, you see this all the time, how it actually is suffering. Uh, it, is very, it is quite obvious. But again, when you understand that birth actually here is a reference to rebirth, then this becomes much more powerful, right? Because then you understand that what it really means is that going through this process, going through the process of becoming sick, right, becoming ill, the process of aging and eventually becoming so old and decrepit, you can't really do anything for yourself, and eventually dying. This is a process you go through not only once. It's enough to go through this once, right? But you go through it again and again and again. The same cycle. And that is when it kind of gets, you, you get a feeling, whoa, enough of this. I don't really want to go through these things so many times. So it's really uh, in reference to rebirth, understanding the first factor here properly, that is when this becomes a very, very serious burden, and you don't want to go through it again, uh, so, you know, millions of times, quite literally. Yeah. Anyway, okay, then we have union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, yeah. right? Union, what is displeasing, basically means that you are, you know, you um, any situation where you are not enjoying yourself, right? Where something is happening which is unpleasant. Somebody says something to you which is not nice. That is union with the displeasing, right? Or, or the previous things that you were just seeing here. Um, uh, you know, so all the sufferings you were just talking about just before old age, death, etc. This is also union with what is displeasing. Anything in life which is nice is union with the displeasing. And of course, this happens every day, right? It's impossible not to have a full day almost, unless you are in deep samadhi all the time. It's impossible to have a full day without some, some kind of suffering happening in your life. Just the way, the way life is constructed, unfortunately. But that's the reality again. We're not trying to deny reality, we're trying to understand reality here. This is what reality is like. And then you have separation from um, uh, what is pleasing. And again, this is also life, right? Being separated from the things that you like. 
one of the contemplations I was mentioning yesterday was being separated from what you love and from what you, what you like in life. Uh, I must become separated from what is, what is it, agreeable and pleasing to me or something like that. Uh, and this happens all the time, you know, people who are close to us, uh, our family members, our partners in life, whatever it is, uh, they die or they leave us or whatever. Uh, I just had one lady here yesterday who said that her partner left her, right? Uh, and this is what it means, separation from what is pleasing. Yeah? And this is an aspect of life. It must happen sooner or later. At the very latest, it happens when somebody dies. It has to happen. And it is like that throughout. I, you know, I remember in, um, in WA, we have all these bushfires. I know you have them here, around here also sometimes, probably even more, perhaps even more so in WA. And uh, you know, you see on the you see all these on the front of the papers. You have you know all the houses being burnt down. You know, and you have the kind of the, the people there, and they are you know they are struck with grief, right? The house has burnt down. All their possessions, everything they own, has been melted and burnt up, and there's nothing left. And for most people, it's a it's a devastating, and it's very difficult to to take. It's separation from what is pleasing. And this is the nature of life. This happens. And of course, again, the idea here is that maybe you feel, okay, in this one life I can deal with it. But again, the idea is that, you know, when you take into account the idea that you have done this before, right? This is not the first time, but it's happened before. And it, unless you do something about it now, it will continue like this into the future. Thousands of times, perhaps, millions of times, life after life, going on. And the way the Buddha talks about this wheel of life and death. He says that, uh, you have, he basically said that you have lived so many times uh, that it's difficult to find any being anywhere that hasn't at some stage been your mother and father or your son and daughter, been a family member, right? Now if you think about the number of beings around, you know, the animals, the insects, it gets pretty, pretty kind of <laughs> enormous, uh, the number of lifetimes that you have, uh, you have been going through. Uh, anyway, so that is um, separation from what is pleasing. Any kind of separation from what is pleasing. Even the most trivial thing, right? Oh, I lost my car keys, I lost my glasses or whatever. Even these things kind of matter to us, right? Uh, small little things that we are attached to. Uh, uh, and they... Um, yeah, <laughs> what was that story Ajahn Brahm tells? The story when... Uh, uh, this was in Thailand, I think, yeah. And there was a monk who was he, or was he, maybe he was a layperson at the time. He was a he was a Westerner. He didn't really understand Thai culture very well. And he walked into this monastery. And, and as he walked into this monastery, there was a lady sitting on the bench there, right? And she was crying and crying and crying, you know. And uh, and so he he just he didn't know what to do because he wasn't used to Thai culture. So he just kind of walked past. And then uh, on the way out, uh, she, you know, he had been inside the temple looking around. And when he came out again, he. Um, uh, he looked at her, and she was looking much better. And he sort of went up, asked her, are you, are you okay here? Is, is everything okay with you? Is there anything I can help out with or whatever? And he said, oh yeah, now everything is okay. Uh, so what, you know, what was the problem? What was the problem before her? Oh no, I had lost my car keys. <laughs> so she was, she was crying and crying, she lost her car keys. But now, and this is kind of one of the, the functions of the monasteries in Thailand, is if you feel really upset about something, you go into the monastery and you hang around for a while, right? And you kind of chill out, and then when you feel better, then kind of you, you, you go again. So when you lose your car keys, you go to the monastery to feel better. 
usually it's a bit more, bit more serious than that, but uh, you can use it for anything. That's the kind of the rule there. <laughs> okay. Mm. Nice and warm, the water. That's very, very good. Okay. So that is, um, that, is that part of it. And the next one is... Um, uh, not to get what one wants is suffering, right? Uh, so again, it's very obvious. We want stuff, uh, and you just often you just don't get it. You can't have it. Uh, and that feeling of not getting what you want, you know, you crave, you want, you desire, but you can't have it. Uh, that too is obviously suffering. Uh, it's a sense of lack, a sense of not being fulfilled, uh, and you can't get that fulfillment. Uh, and if you, get, if you got the fulfillment, it wouldn't be that great anyway. So uh, it's not really... Uh, yeah, okay, so that is, uh, and I think we can all relate to this, but just remember how per per pervasive these things are, and how they are. This thing is what happens all the time, right? These things being separated, not getting from what you want. Uh, these things are, is almost a constant kind of a nuisance in our life, often at a very low level, just in, not a very kind of prominent, uh, but it is there almost continuously to some extent. And then uh, we come to the last part here. In brief, the five aggregates, the five groups uh, subject to clinging are suffering, or the five groups affected by clinging are suffering. And this is one of the questions that was asked yesterday. That means I don't have to spend too much time on it right now. But these five groups subject to clinging, they are basically just experience, right? Whenever you have an experience, that is a moment of these five khandhas, these five groups subject to clinging. You when you experience things, you are aware of it. There's a feeling associated with it. There are certain perceptions associated with it. There's often an intention or a will associated with that. There is a, uh, uh, some, some aspect of materi materiality associated with that. You know, you see forms, you touch something, whatever it is. So this is just a very simple way of understanding these five khandhas, these five groups or five aggregates or whatever you want to call them, uh, is as experience. Every moment of experience is an instance of the five aggregates operating. Not always all five, but usually all five. Only in very special states of meditation do you kind of get away from all five and it's reduced maybe to four or perhaps even three. But usually all five are there. That's all it is, right? The five aggregates are suffering. So what does that mean then? It means that experience is suffering. Right? That's what it basically means. In brief, experience in suffering. Whenever you experience, you are suffering. That's what it means. So this is where we get to the really profound stuff, right? This is, this is very profound. It's very hard to understand how experience as such can be suffering. Yeah? But this is basically what it is saying here. Yeah? So um, I don't know how much more I should say about that, except that keep that in mind as you know, the, most, the whole point of the Buddhist path is that it is, uh, it is very profound and very deep. Yeah? And most of the things I've talked about so far about suffering, you can't understand, it kind of makes sense. You may not understand it fully, because even those aspects are actually quite profound. But when we get, when we get to the idea that 
the very nature of experience is suffering. Uh, that's when it gets very much more difficult to really understand this. Uh, so I, I don't think I will talk much more about that, but keep that just in the back of your mind as this is how the Buddha taught, uh, and this is part of his teaching. Uh, uh, and then, uh, you know, you, you, at least you can have an open mind about that. Uh. Okay, so that is noble truth number one, the noble truth about suffering. Uh, and uh, you can see here that uh, at the very best, you can have a partial knowledge of that truth. Uh, so at the very best, you can have a partial knowledge because to understand that everything at all experience is suffering, the only way you can see that is through insight. Uh, having a moment of insight when you actually look back upon what has been happening in your life and suddenly you see actually uh, this is all suffering. It's only insight and wisdom that can uncover these things. So. <coughs> Dukkha, noble truth number one. <laughs> and for this reason, it's also important to uh, understand that uh, there is a difference between experiencing suffering and understanding suffering. Sometimes we think that by experiencing suffering, we kind of just come to understand it. Uh, maybe you understand a little bit more, huh? but experiencing is one thing, understanding is actually something else. Uh, and what we're trying to do on the Buddhist path is to understand this, uh, and which, of course, is much more profound than just experiencing it as such. So, um, yes. Okay, noble truth number two. Uh, and this because is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there. That is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, and craving for extermination. Okay, so this is uh, the second noble truth. Second noble truth that it is craving which is the source of uh, uh, of suffering. Uh, and um, this is not again. This is much more profound than uh, you know than actually perhaps meets the eye. What do you think it means when craving is a source of suffering? And to understand what it means, you 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 have to look at the broader context here. The craving which leads to renewed existence, right? That is, the, that, that is the type of craving, which is the problem here. So it is precisely because craving leads to rebirth, that is why it is suffering. That is why it is the cause of suffering. Because it means that you are continuing on and on and on. If it only was this life, right? It is like, okay, you've got a bit of old age, you've got, you've got to die once and you have a few illnesses, you can kind of deal with that. But if this is going to go on, you know, pot potentially without end, then it starts to become a real, uh, you know, a, a serious problem, right? And that is what that is what this is pointing to. Uh, it is this craving. Really, what craving means here? Why craving is the origin of suffering? Is because it is the origin and the cause of rebirth. That is why. Uh, and what this is pointing at at a deeper level is pointing at the. Uh, well-known Buddhist teaching of dependent arising, uh, Paticca Samuppada. This is a very well-known Buddhist teaching of the Buddha, and it is quite it is profound, and it basically uh, it shows you what this teaching shows you how by through ignorance through avijja, Paticca Samuppada is a 
series of links of 12 factors that are all linked together, one leading to the next one. And the first one of these 12 factors is avidja. It's delusion, not understanding reality as it actually is, right? Now, if you don't understand things as it actually is, that is what gives rise to craving. There's a whole series of links, and I'm not going to explain it, everything. That's just, there's no way, but, <laughs> um, but the, um, uh, that delusion, because we don't see reality as it actually is, that is why we crave. Craving is a consequence of delusion, not understanding here. And because we crave, that craving then in turn leads to rebirth, and that's why we suffer. That's a short version of dependent arising here. So delusion uh, gives rise to craving, and craving then is the cause of rebirth, and therefore suffering here. So this is what we're seeing here. This is really just a short statement of dependent arising, is what you're seeing here in the Noble Truth. So this is very, very profound. Is it also the case that craving leads to suffering in this life? Is it just about rebirth? And I think the answer is yes, it also leads to suffering in this life. First of all, craving itself is suffering, right? So in, in that sense, it really falls under the first noble truth. Craving is an instance of being separated from what you like, from what you want, right? And in that sense, it, is, it actually is suffering in its very own right. But also, it leads to suffering in this life. Why is that? Well, because when you crave, you attach to things, right? Uh, craving leads to taking up, it leads to doing things in the world, like getting yourself a house, getting a job, getting a partner in life. All of these things are fueled by craving. And once you attach, you're opening yourself up for suffering, because that attachment is going to be challenged. It's going to be challenged when somebody dies, when the belongings you, you, you love get kind of taken away from you, whatever it is. Our attachments get challenged all the time. Attachments to views and to opinions. Other people say, no, that's not the way it is. And then you get upset because that, that is your opinion and you think it's right, etc., etc. Attachments always uh, give rise to suffering. So in that sense, craving in this life uh, also is a source for suffering right here and right now. But the main purpose here is to talk about rebirth. That's why it is mentioned here in this way here. So it leads to renewed existence. It is accompanied by delight and lust, right? You delight in stuff. Wow, isn't it wonderful? And that is why craving arises, because you think things are delightful and worthy of being craved. And seeking delight here and there, there is no end to craving. There is no end to the objects that you can desire. There's always more stuff that can be desired, right? It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, or how powerful you are, or how popular you are, you still crave for more. There's no, there's no end in these things. It just goes on and on and on. And the problems here is the craving for sensual pleasures that we have just talked about before. It leads you kind of out, outside of yourself. The craving for existence, and the craving for uh, extermination, literally the craving for non-existence, right? It's like when somebody commits suicide, uh, uh, they don't want to exist anymore. Uh, and of course the weird thing from the Buddhist point of view is that you have, if you've had enough of life and you commit suicide, that is a desire, it's a craving to no longer exist, and that craving leads to existence, right? Uh, 
and this is kind of the problem. So this is one of the reasons why you know you can't really recommend suicide in Buddhism. It's not because there's necessarily anything wrong with suicide uh, sometimes, uh, perhaps. Uh, but the main one of the reasons is if you commit suicide out of despair because you want to you want to end your existence. Uh, then suddenly you find yourself back again, right? You come back again. Often the same problems re arise, right? It's kind of slightly desperate, isn't it? You want to end it all, and then there you are again. So, because of that, uh, it is much better in Buddhism if you really are so desperate that you want to make an end of everything, uh, is to resolve that in a proper way here and here and now, if you can. And then um, you, you, know, you can uh, hopefully, instead of coming back again, you can actually. Um, make an end of these things. So. so, these are the types of cravings that lead to rebirth. And you will notice it is very specific types of craving, right? If you crave to exist, you will continue to exist in the future. If you crave for sensual pleasures, this is another fuel for existing in the future. But there are some cravings that are not listed here. And one of those cravings is the craving to live the spiritual life, right? To practice in a spiritual way and to move towards the end of all these problems and all suffering. That is not part of this. So there are certain cravings or certain desires that are acceptable on the Buddha. The, 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 the craving to be kind, right? Maybe craving is too strong a word. The desire to be kind, the desire to be generous, the desire to be... Uh, to have compassion, understanding, uh, all of these things are aspects of the path, and as such, they're not included in the craving which is mentioned here. Yeah. Okay, that is the second noble truth, the third one. And now this because, uh, is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. It is the remainderless fading away, the cessation of that same craving. In other words, the craving for rebirth, the giving up and renouncing of it, the freedom from it, the non-reliance on it. So it is the ending of that craving. That, and the reason, of course, again, that the ending of that craving, the remainderless fading away, right? The complete stopping of that craving. Yeah, the reason why that is uh, the cessation of suffering is because you don't get reborn. It also makes you happy here and now, but the main reason is because it doesn't make you, you don't get reborn again afterwards. So. Okay, so that includes the fading away of the craving for sensual pleasures. It's one of the things that we try to do in meditation as well. No more craving to exist, right? That's quite a, quite a, task, not to crave to exist, right? If somebody says, I want to kill you, you kind of say, okay, shrug your shoulders, you know, whatever. That's kind of, you know, that's the depth of this. Uh, if, you, if you really have no craving for existence, you wouldn't be worried about being killed, right? And that wouldn't really matter. And also you have no craving for to, to be exterminated either. You kind of, uh, you know, uh, so th this is uh, obviously quite profound, the cessation of craving. And of course, it has a very nice effect on you also in this life. Uh, you feel cool, right? You feel there's no, this kind of, not, not that uh, yeah, being impelled all the time to follow this craving around. Uh, you feel cool inside. You're not driven by things, not run, uh, run by this craving here. Uh, so it also has a very beautiful effect in this particular life, which maybe you will start to see a little bit of in your meditation practice. 
as you meditate uh, and as you find you become more peaceful, uh, you experience some of that coolness, right? Uh, the cool, some of the coolness and stillness of meditation is precisely because the craving for sensuality, in fact, all craving starts to fade, a li- fade away a little bit, uh, hopefully quite a bit, and then you start to feel some of that coolness inside. Uh, and that is all very, very pleasant and very nice. And then we come to the last one, the fourth noble truth. The noble truth leading to the cessation of suffering. It is this noble eightfold path that is right view again, all the way up to right stillness. So this is the path that leads to the ending of suffering. And again, you have to be careful here. It's very easy to, uh, to read this too casually, right? The Noble Eightfold Path leads to the ending of suffering. It may not sound like very much. It may sound like, yeah, okay, I won't have to suffer so much anymore. But it means that in the most profound sense. It means that any problem, any tiny bit of problem that you might have of any sort whatsoever, Uh, Even the problems you might have in deep meditation, the fact that they don't last, right? Uh, You go into deep state of samadhi and then you have to come out afterwards. You have a nice feeling of joy and happiness and it it doesn't last. Uh, This is also a problem. Uh, Any problem whatsoever, this is what is meant here uh, by suffering. Uh, It is a bit, the idea of suffering is a very, suffering is quite a strong word, uh, but it includes any kind of problem that you might have in life. uh, And then there's the other side of the coin. Not only does it mean that you uh, don't have any suffering, but it also gives rise to the highest possible happiness that you can can have in this world. And uh, that also is very profound. You start to understand that in your meditation practice, as you practice, you start to become peaceful, you experience a bit of joy. And as you, the deeper you go, the more profound that joy is, right? And then you can start to extrapolate where this is leading to. And this must obviously be leading to something pretty extreme. You know, you, you go through your meditation practice, you feel more and more joyful, more and more happy, more and more still. And then the suttas say, well, actually, this is nothing compared to where you're going, right? It gets very exciting. The, the happiness, the kind of the promise of this Noble Eightfold Path is it, 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 it's something really uh, amazing happening here, something very, very powerful going on. Uh, the depth of happiness, the depth of peace, uh, the depth of contentment, the depth of joy that can be experienced as a consequence of this is really beyond, almost beyond imagination for the vast majority of people. Uh, so something very important. So please don't read this too casually. I, of course, this is just nature. We will tend to read it too casually because we don't understand what is going on. But reflect on this. It leads to the end of suffering actually means something very, very profound and very beautiful. And so that is what that last factor is. So this is just to give you again some idea of what it means to understand and to know the Four Noble Truths, right? So when we say that this is right view, this is an idea of what right view is. And as I said before, you can have this right view to a greater or lesser extent. Just by reading it and understanding where we have done now, you already have a little bit of right view. And the more you contemplate this, the more you think about these things, the more that right view will be established. Until one day you practice the Noble Eightfold Path, and then you know you come to Samma Samadhi, 
uh, to the right stillness of the path, and then, wow, suddenly you understand the full depth of it. Uh, and once you understand the full depth of it, uh, then you internalize these Four Noble Truths, and they are become like yours. Uh, they become part of your psychology, part of your makeup, and you can't really, you can't really uh, get away from these Four Noble Truths anymore. Now you are kind of practicing the path 100%, uh, because you know what the path is all about. Uh, one of the things that you understand as part of this, you understand the Noble Eightfold Path itself. You understand, this, is, this is what it's saying here, right? You understand also the fourth Noble Truth. It means you understand the path. You know what the path is. And this is why it is said in the suttas that you become independent of anyone else in the world. Because now you know the path to the end of suffering. You have internalized this. It becomes part of you. You understand that these factors, when you practice them, they will purify you. When they purify you, it will eventually lead, give rise to deep meditation. And that depth of meditation will give, will, will, uh, give rise to insight. This is essentially what you understand. And you understand every moment whether you are practicing that Noble eight, Eightfold Path or not. And this is the difference between the vast majority of people and people who have seen the Four Noble Truths. Is that for the majority of people, often we don't know, right? Are we practicing the Noble Eightfold Path? Are we not? Sometimes we go in the right way, sometimes we lose our way and we're not really practicing anymore. So for, for, for the majority of people, uh, you, know, you ask them, are you practicing the, the Eightfold Path? They will say, they might say yes, but really you cannot be consistently practicing this path unless you have seen it for yourself. So we're just doing our best, right? We are approximating to practicing this path, but not really hitting the nail on the head a lot of the time. And then eventually, when you see what this path is about, then you can practice it 100%. And interesting as well is the fact that, you know, one of the aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path is right view. So right view is to understand the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths include the Noble Eightfold Path, and the Noble Eightfold Path includes right view. So. So, so one of the things of right view is that it means you know what right view is, right? That's what it basically means. So if you have right view, you know right view. So right view means also understanding right view. So that's also quite helpful. So again, uh, same principle again. We are, uh, until we get to that point, you have to approximate and you have to try your best uh, to find out what right view is all, all about. Anyway, that is, I hadn't actually intended to go on for so long, but there you are. This is what happens. <laughs> and um, so that is the, uh, the kind of the deep insight. This is the, the real right view. Uh, but the right view, which is more relevant to us, is the right view which comes up next. And this is how the Buddha comes in the next paragraph. This is Majjhima 41. And I'm not, not going to get into that now, but this is what is called the ordinary right view of the ordinary person. And this is what is relevant for the vast, uh, more, more relevant, I should say, for the vast majority of people. And uh, uh, hopefully we will spend quite a bit of time over the next couple of days discussing that, that right view, because I think this is, again, the uh, foundation stone for the, the whole path. Uh, until then, until tomorrow morning, uh, just continue having a good time. Don't get into the self-mortification, the torturing, but try to enjoy yourself and have a good time, and then you'll be doing all right. Okay, see you later on. Huh?